0: hi this is tony silva and charles Wiz, and this is episode 60 of two teachers talking charles and i get together to talk about teaching uh things that work for us things that don't work for us and things that we just don't have any idea about (laughs) but um we talk about it nevertheless
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really uh,
0: true. (laughs) It doesn't stop us at all. And uh, today we're talking about um, raising the bar, raising expectations uh, for ourselves, our own um, attitudes and thoughts and things of of our students and also their expectations, you know, about um, what the classroom experience is, about their work, the quality of their work, the amount of work that they have to do, um, and how those expectations can um, impact the actual learning, the actual performance.
1: Oh, it does have a major impact, doesn't it? I mean, especially what, you know, the attitudes we bring into the classroom about what the students are capable of. But, yeah, it can, and it can backfire, too.
0: Oh, <laughs> backfire. Really, it's a balancing oh, act, right? But uh, you had some success, right, this year, you were mentioning? I,
1: I well, I think I had success. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting initial indicators of success. I'm talking about, uh, I had two writing classes. One is... Um, a, well, they're both required. One for the liberal arts program at the university, and the second one is the writing class for the English education majors, who, which is the, the department I teach in. And in both of those classes, I basically upped the ante in terms of the amount of work that students had to submit and expectations for, you know, wanting higher, you know, better work, higher quality work. Mm. And after doing uh, the initial review of their work, it seems to have resulted in some good papers being um, submitted. But I must, I have to be honest here that there's a self selection process involved in the liberal arts writing class because a lot of students dropped out. Mm. Um, you know, out of an initial enrollment of, I, I think, 17, I was left with 12. So, that says something in terms of students self-selecting out of a demanding class. Mm. But the other class, um, students can't really self-select out because without that, it's a, it's a requirement for the major. Mm. And since I'm the only person who teaches that class for this majors, the students, there's no there's no benefit for them to not pass my class because they end up taking me again the following year. So... Given that caveat, um, yeah, I'd say that there seemed to be a positive response to the demand for more work and higher quality work from the students. But I can't really tell you, Tony, exactly what drove that in the Hmm. sense of what, you know, specific changes I engineered in the classroom. So that's something to think about. So there
0: is nothing concrete like in terms of the length of the papers or uh, the amount, the number of rewrites that were required or the, num- you know, I mean, the length of the you know, papers or the number of papers, uh, the number of rewrites, the the, um, the standard that needed to get met. I mean, how, what was considered acceptable or in your grading or you're communicating to them? Nothing that you can pinpoint?
1: Well, I'm looking. There was... The biggest change was informing them that there would be an assignment every week that would be due. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of times in the previous writing classes, the assignments might be a Uh two-week period. Uh In other words, they might have, and then they'd have time to submit something. So the big change here was that something's going to be submitted every week. It's going to be evaluated by a peer. You're going to do a lot of peer editing, and you're going to submit, but there's also going to be a revision everything is going to be revised uh what actually the concrete thing i probably could claim i was reading somewhere um, a book i wish i could remember the name of the person who said this but they basically said that all first drafts are crap that nobody writes a good first draft and that the need and the necessity for revising and revising and revising. And that resonated with me. So I think that's how I approached it was that we're going to have you submit things, but the real, real work is going to be in the revision work. And I became much more demanding about how strict the students were with each other in terms of the feedback, in terms of the peer editing and the evaluation that I said, i want to see lots of marks on the papers and teaching them the difference of that being kind and nice is not helpful when editing when giving feedback to people in terms of their writing that you have to be honest and polite but it has to be ruthless, so I think that's probably the biggest change was the raising the bar on their evaluating each other. Mm. If I look back on it now, and, and listening
0: listening to you talk, um, and and, and not it, falling asleep. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a. <laughs> uh,
1: we'll address that issue it, later. It, it, it Kind
0: of underscores how difficult it is to un as you talked about, like you know, not being sure whether it was successful or not. How hard that by itself is to determine. The assessment. How how hard it is to unravel all the different factors, right? So in this case you've got the the higher expectations in terms of the amount of writing that they're doing. Uh you've got higher expectations in terms of the 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 peer editing. Uh and in your mind a conscious uh increased drive for revision and so forth and so on. And uh, the first thing that they said to me is like, well, yeah, you've got them writing every week instead of every two weeks. That by itself should uh, result in better writing at the end of the semester. Um, coupled with those expectations, and okay, so separate separate that out, and what what what? Is the, how much did one contribute? How much did the other is like that's really tough,
1: <laughs> well, it's really always, hard, if not a, you know, obviously impossible. Well, there's always a problem of confounding factors. What? Mm. Is essential though for this. When I start thinking about it, as if I haven't thought about it before. By the way, <laughs> don't want to give that impression. Is that I have an understanding of where they, what kind of work has been produced over a few years. In other words, there's a, I've done some assessments. I know the basic level of the students coming in, so that I don't actually have to run um, any kind of diagnostic on them in the beginning to get a general sense of what the class is capable of. Hmm. And that's an important thing, because when we're talking about raising the bar, it's really important to know where the students are or what their level is so that you can estimate what they're capable of doing. Here, I'm kind of able to go back over four or five years, six years of teaching these classes and say, okay, I know what students have basically done given a variety of levels over the year I can kind of baseline it and that was helpful in understanding that well the students are capable of submitting a writing project every week or some kind of writing Um, but the confounding factor I'm wondering about is how much of this is students communicating to each other that oh if you take this class you're going to have a lot of writing or not a lot of writing so i'm not sure that's
0: that's another big factor too because yes once you have a a reputation uh the students come in with a certain uh certain information about the way the class is done and the amount of work and so forth of your grading policies and so forth um which is communicated you know among students on, on campus and things so that also is is a factor Right, there, some... but going back to what you, what some that you said, um, you're kind of fortunate in that um, you've got this um, baseline, existing baseline, and, and there's enough regularity in your classes from year to year, um, which is a lot of people don't have that yes. luxury. So, for example, I also teach um, a combination reading writing class, and um, each, um, and there are three different ma- sets of majors, and each semester, the level, the assessed level of the students is going to change. And so I need to each uh, semester, each new group of students have to do at the beginning of the semester to do my own assessment of their needs and assessment of their abilities, um, whether it's the mechanics, whether it's their mental horsepower, whether, or how much does this group really want to work? Um, and I think that that if um you know if you 've got the baseline that 's great, if you don't you got to create your own because key to this whole thing as as, as you as you mentioned, I want to just emphasize it um in order to raise the bar, you really have to know what the students are actually capable of i mean it 's fine thing to say, okay, you guys are going to write the great American novel, <laughs> each of you're going to get a chapter and say it 's great to have this unrealistic goal, but um, if if the students don't have a realistic chance of achieving that goal, um, it's going to backfire.
1: Mm, it's really uh, going to be a disaster,
0: <laughs> and you know that, that's gonna, they're going to be English even more that. than they did before <laughs> they got to you, right?
1: I've done that before. Uh-huh. I made that mistake. Well, everybody has more than once. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to set a record on that. <laughs> but that's a good point. Is that the the goal? has to be something they're capable of accomplishing and of achieving.
0: Yeah, realistic goals, right.
1: And they also, I think, have to be built in to the... Success has to be built into the first couple of assignments. Mm, Otherwise... That's
0: really important. That's really good.
1: Yeah, because you're raising the bar. You're saying, okay, I expect you to do this. I think you can do this. Because what we're doing is, as we mentioned before in the beginning, talking about the difference between... Our expectations and their expectations. I can pretty much deal with my expectations. Um, it's really hard to influence their expectations and what they assume to be what they're capable of doing. So the first yeah, couple Yeah, that's of, the piece that you've got to change, huh? Right. And so building in some kind of challenging assignment in the first week or the second week that they can succeed, be successful at, that they could succeed with, I think is really key. But you know, that's always a hard one to come up with,
0: yeah, and it's it, along with um the um you know their abilities uh which is one thing but uh, so closely related but really not the same thing um are the other peripheral skills that might be involved um we we Allison Kitzman was on the, the show a few weeks ago, and one of her um big things is uh which she calls preloading, and that is Uh, the way she does it in her department and her program is making sure and actually doing in the first few weeks of the year um, basic academic skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like, you know, things that we mistakenly assume that students know how to do. Things like taking notes, (laughs) bringing a a, a piece of paper and a pen to class Um, and, you know, confirming what, you know what the homework might be or what the assignment might be and whether you're in class or not. It's Like if you're not in class, then yes, it's your responsibility to find out what it is that's expected of you. Because you'll have kids to do, I'm sure you still have kids to do this. They'll come to class and you, you know, the assignment, it says, well, where's your assignment? It's like, well, I was absent last week. Okay, that's two strikes against you. You're absent and you haven't done the work. And somehow being absent in, their, in many students' minds, Excuses them from being responsible for the work that was required because they weren't there in class, and it's like,
1: and and there you have it. In terms, of... and you got to teach that. To that's them. raising the bar for some yeah. students. that's raising the bar for some yeah, students. Like staying
0: in the chair, not on the floor. Well, I've had that. Uh, well,
1: we've we've had that. We've worked at places where that was. Uh, we worked together where that was an issue. But let's go back to something. For example. As simple as taking notes. See, now, there's an interesting choice of words. As simple as taking notes. And I think you just pointed out, for some students, that's not even built in. Correct. Um, And that goes back to what we've talked about before, this learned dependency. A lot of raising the bar, a lot of, I think, what Allison's talking about, is twofold. One is what students don't know how to do. And the second part is the expectation on their part that they don't need to learn things because it's supplied to them. And a perfect example of that are the professors who give out their PowerPoint notes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so the right. students just sit there passively during the whole class knowing that there's no reason to engage in note taking. So this raising of the bar can be broken down at least initially. Tony, right? I think is one is let's look at it as a skill-based issue. Increasing their ability to do basic skills. So, for example, note taking. Uh, I don't know what you do. How do? You, what do you do for note taking in your class? Do you teach it directly to your students?
0: No, I don't teach a lot of content classes. Um, so many of my classes are more activity-based. Mm-hmm. Um, for some classes I will point out f- make a point of uh when I'm introducing new vocabulary and new expressions. Um I'll just very simple say like, write this down. It's important.
1: Hmm.
0: And I'll I'll make a point against say When I write when I write these words on the board here, write them down because they're important. They're either important for the exam that I may or may not give, depending on the school and the class. Uh, It's important because they just something that they're supposed to know, or it's something that's very likely going to show up like on a TOEIC or a TOEFL exam. Um, But I just very clear say, listen, this part of the board, when I write something here, it's important. Write it down.
1: Oh, that's interesting because I will teach note taking in every class, Mm -hmm. whether it's content based or skill based class, for example. And I use the Cornell note taking template. With my students, mm-hmm. and I print it out. It's accessible, you know, download, you know, the link from the website, and that they're supposed to do that every week. And usually, you know, because I'm beginning and ending every class with review, and they're allowed to use those notes for any quizzes or tests. So there's an incentive there. But the idea, for example, that a teacher would write a new word on the board and students would not even write it down Mm -hmm. is an indication of just one kind of way that raising the bar is that the student understands they need to write the word down, but also that they want to write the word down, but also that you as the teacher have built in some mechanism that will reward the behavior you're expecting. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the quiz or the test that checks on the vocabulary the following week and that allows them to pull their notes out so that you're driving them because so much of raising the bar what we're talking about starts off with making sure that they understand the basics and they're competent with the basics it would be as if you know we're talking about any sport or playing any musical instrument without those scales understanding of the scales you can't go anywhere the problem is that practicing the skills is probably the least exciting part of learning an instrument everybody wants to jam away
0: yeah right exactly and the thing is if you're going to ask them to do things with those skills and they don't have them you're they're they're set up for failure from the very beginning and regardless of how hard you try to push them later on if they don't know how to do what you're asking them to do um they're just going to get turned off because it, i mean it's just confusion right
1: Oh, exactly. So we're breaking down these activities into subsets. Right. So you have a lot of variation, I think, in your classes from semester to semester and year to year. How do you go about establishing a baseline, understanding where the students are at? Do you have some tools you use to get an idea of where the students are at so you know where you're starting from? Because you obviously can't raise the bar if you don't know where you're starting from.
0: Right. Um, so again, so many different classes. I don't have a a fixed toolbox. But um, it's a it's a writing class or reading writing class. Yeah, they'll get um, at the beginning. They'll get uh, some something to read and then summarize. Uh, they'll have to do that, and they'll have to do another short piece of writing, just so I get a sense of like what they're getting from the reading and and what their actual construction is like. Mm-hmm. Um, in the speaking classes, it's um, a little bit more difficult. Um we you know in a, a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year we we talked about what we did on the first day, and um the informal assessment tricks and so forth that that each of us had in terms of what we watch for um for example, you know who laughs at the jokes um
1: I stopped doing you that give a, you give a direction my, my wife and to told see me how, me how many people like, you know
0: <laughs> cl- you know put your book away and see how many people actually put the book away right or and you know you're just going to eyeball that kind of stuff look for you know comprehension in the eyes um, you know small things like that for the, for the speaking class for the writing classes, it's 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 a it's a writing sample Mhm
1: I think the one about following directions is a good one Mhm that's a, always a good indicator Interestingly we were going back to the episode we talked about when um it's a long time ago. This is episode 60, so we're going back. That must have been one of the first episodes. Early early on, probably
0: in the first year. Yeah, at the end yeah. of the first year, I'm guessing.
1: Right. And here's something I'm definitely <clears throat> going to change is um, I'm going to go in and I'm going to give vocabulary assessments to all my classes on the first day. Hm. I'm find I've decided that I even with all my informal assessments and after doing, you know, teaching, I don't know how many years now, I'm still not getting how many students are actually getting it or not because i figured out that they're very adept at adapting Mm -hmm. this isn't you know i mean i have strategies for when i don't understand what's happening in japanese (laughs) so
0: right and and these kids having gotten admission to um certain level of university are quite adept at that i mean they are good at finding a way to get through
1: right so Um, by definition at the level of at the university you're at, they're adept at getting through that university. It's an interesting concept. So I'm decided that regardless of the negative impact an assessment will have on the first class and on the class environment, I need some quick and easy and accurate measure of my students' language abilities so that I can baseline accurately. And I've decided just that I will do a quick vocabulary test of the most frequent two thousand words. Um, this is what's called the Levels Test from Paul Nation. I've put it onto a Google form so my students can just do it on their smartphones. It has a grading script, and I, within ten minutes of the cl- of the test being finished on the very first day, I have a profile of how, you know how what my students' basic English. Ability is in terms of recognizing words, and that's helpful. And that's, I think, one of the big determinants of being able to baseline is to start off and saying, "Hey, how many words in English can they recognize? Not can they produce, right? But you know, recognize, and that's helpful. And I'll let you know how that goes because I mm. traditionally have never done that. I've only done that in a listening reading class where it's really essential to do that from the first day so that students can be directed to the appropriate graded readers Mm -hmm. that they need Mm -hmm. to use. So I'll let you know how that goes. But So I'm just wondering, Tony, so you go into a class and I think you get a lot of really good production out of your students when I hear what you've done with them and the kind of projects they do and where they end up. I think you have pretty high expectations going in regardless of yeah,
0: the lesson. and Yeah, and, and that can backfire, right? And, uh, in fact, that happened to me this semester with um, one of the classes. Uh, as I've talked about before, I give the students a lot of control, a lot of autonomy about what they do, and so the students can choose uh, what they uh, want to do for their grades. You know, for example, this is a reading... There's a lot of choices, right? Um, reading journals, um, formal research papers um, writing journals, book reports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they had a lot, a lot of choices going in. And, um, they, uh, they kind of threw me because they, uh, they themselves requested or chose, um, to do a, a real lot of work. I mean, a lot of stuff and it's, and I was kind of taking it back cause it was, it was unusual. And, um, and I was like, "You guys understand?" <laughs> they didn't. And I said, "Do you guys really understand?" And he said, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. Well, let's raise the bar and, on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they yeah. raised their own bar, <laughs> way wow. past what they were capable of, well, and way not, past what no, they no, were no, understanding. Not not what they were capable. The, what they the were cater. capable of
1: understanding.
0: Yeah. So they well they understood something, but they didn't understand all of it. They didn't understand how much work was involved. Well, not understanding. and that was my fault. Maybe not explaining it well enough. Um, but they were certainly because they were capable of doing the work because of their reading. They can they're free to choose their own graded readers. And book reports, same thing. So there's nothing about the book being too difficult, the reading being too difficult, or the paper being too long. And I yeah I, don't know, I know what they're capable of. In this sense, I know what they're capable of. Eight hundred words is not too much to ask of these kids.
1: Is that
0: for a week? No, that's for their um, big writing project. But they're reading and writing together in one semester. So they had to do other things too. That wasn't their sole product. But uh, no, that was their big paper. So they were, the the work was not beyond their capability, but they really grossly underestimated the amount of work that they were taking on. And, you know, I let them do it, and about three. Fourths of the way through the semester, I basically got the donkey sitting in the road. There was a whole handful of kids who just refused to do the work. They kept coming to class, but they just weren't doing the work. And then they failed. <laughs> there was, like, I think, in one class of 25, there were three kids. Uh, they were supposed to do reading journals, supposed to read, I, it was a, a small amount, 2,000 words a week. Um, and I checked five times during the semester. There's a zero and a zero and a zero and a zero. And I says, You know, <laughs> you got three zeros here. Um, this is you know 20% of your grade, and it's fine if you're going to get hundreds on the tests and you're going to produce a, a great paper, but this is really kind of an easy way to get your grade up. Um, a zero and a zero, and it's like, Well, there you go. And it was, it was a little sad because I don't I don't know exactly what happened. That hmm. what that what the disconnect was, uh where they I just don't know. I guess I didn't do a very good job of explaining it or a well enough job. They didn't understand and I didn't do a good enough job. So it didn't work out well at all.
1: But yeah that's always a terrible terrible feeling so you allowed the students though to you give them a lot of autonomy what they want to do and i think i've talked about this that i want to set up a a track or a a b track and a c track in my classes um in terms of raising the bar, what it's actually kind of also lowering the bar is maybe to let students self-select who wants to really achieve, who wants to really go for it, who wants to really do the best, and then have let the other students who are not interested in really spending a lot of time or effort, you know, focusing on the class, have them have a structured situation where they can be successful and be able to get through it. But the other students have the opportunity to really push themselves and go as far as they want. And this goes back to one size does not fit all. I think I'm thinking now, Tony, that I'm taking that approach again, right? Raising the bar is something I'm applying carte blanche across the board. And maybe that's not right. Maybe, again, looking at more individualized instruction, which is such a difficult, difficult thing to do, Mm -hmm. differentiated instruction, adjusting to all the different levels and personalities in the classroom. But maybe if we looked at raising the bar, maybe one of the things we should actually be asking are, what students are most receptive? to having the bar raised for them, who are going to be the most successful, who are gonna have the best chances to achieve beyond what they expect. Does that make sense? And or is that discriminating against students or is that not allowing students to really become who they are, you know, achieve their potential in a classroom? Seems like yeah, a real ethical or, or nightmare somebody, yeah, there, doesn't might it? Say,
0: yeah. Like taking the easy way out. Is that okay? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Good
1: question. I mean you're right, we're talking about raising the bar. If I want to raise the bar in a classroom, what do I do about the student who might not be able to go that path for a variety of reasons, and it could be they don't want to or they're not capable, they're limited they have limitations again it's It's a can of worms but trying to find a way to get students to achieve more. I think, um, who is it? It's John Hattie in Visible Learning, I think, where he says that you do not ask students to do their best. The teacher's responsibility is to get students to do more than their best. So he's coming from that whole perspective of raising the bar. And I know that I've gone into classrooms where I've said, okay, what I just want you to do is to do your best. And she's like, no, well, that's an interesting thing about raising the bar is saying, no, I want your best, you to yeah, do... Your best your is quite
0: good enough yet.
1: Right, right, right. I want more than your best. Right. And you, are, and you, you don't even... Expand
0: the concept of what your best is.
1: It's a great point. It's great point is that it's what their conception of best is could be very, very different from what they're capable of. And how do you get that mismatch to be clear to them, I mean, is there anything you can do or you've done that allows students to see that they're capable of achieving so much more so that they get some insight or it becomes visible to them that wow, I can do better I didn't realize i'm capable of this
0: well i think I think consciously I think one of the things that you mentioned early on um, uh, comes into play um before that I think first of all, a like realistic assessment of of what they're What they really in fact are capable of. Uh, The thing that you mentioned was very early on to uh, give them some task, complex, simple, really doesn't make a difference. That's moderate difficulty for them but they are kind of set up, not guaranteed but very, very likely to be able to succeed at. So they get the positive reward of succeeding early on, tackling something that they thought was intimidating or challenging and then um, succeeding, which I do with a lot with the speaking classes. Um, cause a lot of kids are just not ready to, to speak. And I force them on the second week that they speaking. And then I, you know, always praise them within the class. See, it's, it didn't hurt. You did it. And then it's all you have to do. And they say, Oh, that's all we have to do. That's all you got to do. And it, and it works great. But in terms of like, you know, for again, for everybody to, to, to kind of go at a, at a complete different angle here. Um, Subconscious um, studies uh, showing um, the the teacher's expectation and the teacher's internalized expectations of the class or individual students and the impact that it has, how the, the expectations drive the teacher's behavior and the effect that that behavior has on the students. Um, and there's a study, this 1970s, uh, Rosenthal, I think. Um, and, um, it was, a, in California and they took, um, classrooms and, uh, they told the teachers they were giving the students a special test. It was just a regular IQ test, but they told the teachers it was a special test. And then they chose students at random. And I said that this special test identified these students as, um, <clears throat> driven to, Excel. These people are show the characteristics of excellence and these are going to be the students that you really want to watch because they're going to do really well. And then they give them the same post-test and yes, in fact, those students that were chosen at random that were perceived by the teachers to be overachievers, in fact overachieved. Mm. So the teacher's behavior in terms like um, calling on the student, nodding and smiling, distance, you know, to the student, um, reaction to student answers, so forth and so on. Different answers. all the subconscious things that a teacher does when he he or she expects the student to be able to do things well, versus says, "Oh, you're just an ordinary person, so you didn't answer the question." I mean, all kinds of subtle things that we do without thinking about it. By being aware of that, and somehow integrating that into your own classroom. A sketch whatever your act um, if you're aware of that and you can isolate what those things are and then apply those universally not to the students not just the students that you think are likely to succeed um, that is the way of another way of raising that bar and raising their
1: performance and I think the flip side to that study Tony is the one, again, I think, where did it occur? Maybe Stanford, where they took students and they were measuring mathematic ability, mathematics ability, and they said to students, okay, in one sense, intelligence is fixed, and to the other group, they said, intelligence is plastic, it's variable, it can change, it can grow and develop, and again, get very different results, they students. told this to the
0: students or the teachers?
1: They told it to the students. Students. Right, so this is the flip side of that, yep. kind of the same thing with you know intelligence is variable and it can be improved. It's not a fixed genetic kind of quality. And again, guess which students did better? <clears throat> These effective variables have a, quite an impact in the classroom. And being aware of them is important. But I want to go back to what you were talking about with this the expectations. Expectations are how we think about students. Where those thoughts creep in while you're teaching, is like, "Oh, this kid's not getting it," or "What's wrong here?" Those are the, you know, those are pretty easy to identify in our in our thought patterns while we're teaching. I think as they arise, and I've really tried to become as aware of po- as much as possible when one of those thoughts or that em- kind of reaction occurs, and to stifle that as much as right away, just because it's like, this is not helping me, I'm labeling a student. And this is the key, because once we have that thought about a student or a class, we, give them, we have a fixed kind of estimate of what they're capable of doing, we've created a box.
0: Yeah, yeah, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, ex-
1: you, right. it
0: becomes exactly what you expect it to be, and this, you're making it happen.
1: And this is, <laughs> right, and this is the problem with labels is that it imposes a paradigm of how I'm going to react and think and interact with that student so avoiding labels is really good and in a sense expectations are a kind of a label the other thing I think that's really important Tony what, with what you're talking about especially when you were describing what you do in class is the importance of feedback and that we as teachers have to be getting feedback on how students are doing, but the students also have to be getting feedback about how well they're doing. And if one thing that I definitely need to increase in my classes is the amount of feedback students are getting about how well they're doing. And
0: Yes, capital Y, yes, with a bunch of exclamation points after it, because that is a incredibly effective teaching tool, that kind of feedback, positive praise when they're doing something right. Because I think I think a basic assumption that I think teachers have, have to have, that they, you have to assume that the students come to class, they, they want to do well. Now, their experience may have been that <laughs> they've never done well before, <laughs> and it's probably not going to go so well this time either. Um, but if they were given a choice... I think students would choose to do well rather than do poorly. Um, That may not be realistic for some of them. Their own experience might not bear out that kind of optimism, but if we can give them the choice, which is why I think that you talked about early on that uh, uh, task that's geared towards success, but uh, graduating those at a manageable pace, right? Again, close monitoring, close assessment site, and just keeping them, pushing them a little bit harder and a little bit harder throughout the semester uh, can be, I think, can be really uh, effective. But that, again, the, the success, the actual success on the task, but also, as you said, the feedback. And it doesn't necess- need to be positive either. You know, we said it was like, this isn't good enough. You know, you need to you need to you need to work a little bit harder. You need to do a little bit more. Uh, you need to pay more attention to A, B, and C, um, rather than just you know toss it out there. I mean, that kind of again, this is the kind of thing that they talked about in that um, the study that I was talking about. Subtle things, right? You know, giving a, a, um, a paper back to a student. You know, if you think that the student is not capable, and it's a fifty or sixty. You just you just give it to them and it's like so, someone gets a high grade and say, Oh, this is really good. There you go. Of course. Of course, Sachiko ninety five. Yeah, great. Um and we can catch ourselves doing that. Um and it can be poison to the to the wrong people, right? I mean it's really helpful for the for the kids that we think are are brilliant, but um we can really be harming some kids to, pretty much unconsciously.
1: So one keep point, I think what you're saying, for raising the bar is making sure that an appropriate type and appropriate amount of feedback from the teacher to the student is provided.
0: Absolutely. And
1: so that's actually a pretty easy thing to monitor. I know that in a class I'll say, I need to say at least one positive thing to each student in the class today. And even if that's a class with 30 students, it doesn't take a long time to walk through the class walk around the class while students are on task and say one thing to students. But that's a a simple, I think, way to approach it, is to I need to provide one positive piece of feedback and I need to provide one critical piece of feedback that will enable someone to move to a higher level, to improve in some way. It's a good way just to count and it's just, you just have to check that off on your roll sheet, right? Yeah. So that's a real easy takeaway right there. But I think you're really right about just those nuanced little things, right? That when you turn to one student and say, wow, you did really great. And the student sitting next to that student is thinking, well, what about me? Right. And right. for all you right. know, you've just, you've you've gained one kid and lost another. And your net gain is zero. And that brings up a whole other question one day we have to address is the issue of net gain versus individual gain. But I think you've made a really good point about just the need to be careful with our expectations and not just clearly stating them but how they manifest themselves actually become observable and visible to the students. And there's only one way to do that, right? And it's the most painful thing in the world, is you got to videotape yourself. Mm. Otherwise, you're not going to see it. And um, I don't know, Tony. Have you? You've done the videotaping, right?
0: Not recently, but yes, I have.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, most of us haven't done it recently. I I actually videotaped myself this year. Mm. Oh wow! <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, kudos. I mean, it takes a lot of courage. No,
1: no, it took more courage to watch than to. Well, same thing. (laughs) But it was painful. It was really painful thing. I thought I was, you know, doing this, and I was seeing, you know, facial expressions when a student would say something that was Mm. obviously communicating that I was not pleased. Mm. Um, You know, I would see how I was not distributing myself equally through the classroom, for example, even though I think I'm better than... You know a lot of the people i've watched or i see again um but the the real value was you know dealing with the ego aspect right um and i i you know i'm looking at that and thinking you know when i raise the bar with my students am i really raising their bar or am i raising my bar i mean how much of that's ego I'm kind of segueing here a little bit, but Mm. I think we might want to one day have an episode just about what's the role of ego in teaching? Mm. Because, you know, it's usually it's lose your ego, right? But yeah, um, what I was going to say, though, is there's so I just was watching myself and I was seeing so many clues that obviously the students could pick up, you know, when I was happy, when I was not pleased, Mm -hmm. when I was disappointed. And the point is that, I realized that if I'm giving negative feedback, or let me rephrase, if I'm giving critical feedback, that there's improvements that need to be made or the level of work wasn't appropriate, I was able to see that I need to be able to communicate that so that my the unconscious expressions of disappointment are not being communicated. Because mm-hmm. that's what I really could see was, it was really clear that I was disappointed with certain <clears throat> students.
0: Yeah, when we're up in front of the room and we're, we're talking, we're going through our thing, I and mean, you got those 20, 30, 40 pairs of eyes trained on you, um, if they're not sleeping, <laughs> they see
1: everything.
0: Like you're talking about those like subtle little things that you do not realize that you're doing.
1: They pick that up. Well, you're right. I don't see it just because I don't watch myself. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you think you're in control. You think you know what you're doing. You think you're in control of all that stuff that would, what your facial expressions, how you're communicating, all that stuff. You think you got it down, but you said when you watch that videotape of yourself, it's <laughs> all other things become quite apparent.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. So when we talk about raising the bar, individually as a teacher, I have certain specific things I'm going to be working on this year, mm. which again I'm going to be videotaping again, and what i've done though is i i used a video camera and i used an ipad so and they were in opposite they were pointed in opposite directions. so one is looking at students and the other is looking kind of at me from different perspectives uh-huh. and then they're kind of synced together time-wise mm-hmm. so i can actually watch and see you know Just if i do some to student reaction mean. to what i'm saying yeah and it takes a lot of time and it was really really time you know um, it took a lot of effort, mm. but it's really valuable in um, seeing how those unconscious things that I'm just not aware of. And as you pointed out so clearly, I, think, I thought I was really in control of the performance aspect. I thought I'm able to control you know, um, the expression of my emotions or how I'm feeling, and it's just absolutely wrong. You know, And they're seeing everything, as you pointed out so so i I know how I want to raise my bar in a specific way this year, um, but that's an example of the importance of feedback, and I'm beginning to think that to raise the bar, the first step is to increase the quantity and quality of feedback we're getting and It's, I'm not talking about corrective feedback here. I'm talking about what, again, Hattie would talk about where he says, you know, getting information, data about how the students are doing, how well they're understanding, how they're feeling. In other words, it's feedback from the students about what's going on in the classroom. And if we can create mechanisms that allow us to get that feedback, we have a better understanding of what's going on in the classroom. And therefore it's a lot clearer how to raise the bar. But otherwise, you're flying blind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first step in raising the bar. But the flip side, Tony, don't you think, is we get back into the institutional issue. How do you raise the bar at an institution that has maintained a low bar? <clears throat> or do we not even want to discuss that and open well, that can I, we can,
0: I think we can pose the question. I don't know that either of us has an answer. Um, Again, this is something that um I've discussed with um with Allison uh, and her school and her department um and she's trying to do exactly that with um the her crew of teachers and her mantra for the past couple of years has been raise the bar raise the bar raise the bar um I don't know that's a, that's that's a whole other thing and it's very very difficult but um I think that's what you what you do and you do you do it like one teacher at a time if you're trying to reform the whole institution but if you're part time, you don't you don't have a chance of doing anything like that, other than something informal in the teachers' room and so forth and so on, um, and but mostly you're left with what you're going to do in your class, in as, as as in a micro environment where the the macro environment is one with a very very set of low bars <laughs> across the board, um, uh, and I think at this point yeah I think the teacher. Uh, needs to kind of realize that, you know, have the self-confidence and and maybe the ego saying, well, yeah, that might be the case in your other classes. This isn't your other classes. This is this class. And in this class, this is how it's going to be. Hmm. I'm going to expect certain things of you. And I want you to expect those things of yourself as well. And uh, you're going to, Succeed. You're going to do this. I don't know that you have an option other than just throwing in the towel and saying, okay, do it your way. Hmm.
1: That's a difficult situation. But Hmm. I I think you're right that you set up those expectations in your classroom. And And it's hard work. It's such hard work, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. But that's one way to approach it and but at least it can be done you can go in and say you know i i understand that this is what you think is happening but this is my classroom and there's that ego thing right this is my domain Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i believe you can learn i could believe you can do better than you think and that is how we're going to deal with you know the expectations and what, how you're going to act and behave in the class. But then we get to the elephant in the room, which is the problem and the issue of motivation. And there's silence on the other side. Well, <laughs> <laughs> That's the big elephant in the room, though, isn't it? How motivated the students are, because if they're motivated, they will rise to the level of expectations of the teacher.
0: Right. And yeah, you'll have students coming in with, you know, as you just said, different levels of motivation, but um, in any attempt to change behavior, motivation precedes the behavior. And uh, I guess it's our job to try and figure out exactly how to tweak the tasks and the rewards to tweak that motivation, Um, make it give them reasons to do something, one thing rather than the other. Um, to do, you know, to do this or to not do it, make the rewards and the consequences such that it makes sense for them to do what it is that you're asking them to do. Um, I um, one of the things that I do in in kind of <laughs> in preparation for certain classes where my own expectations are for <laughs> students with, uh, let's say, this lack of motivation. Um, and I, I'm sure that we talked about this a couple of years ago, but very briefly part of my first day uh, spiel is, um, yeah, we've got, we're here for the same reason we're here to learn English, for you to learn English. I'm supposed I'm so to teach you're supposed to learn. And that's what we're going to do. If you're here for any other reason, you're probably in the wrong place. And it's probably a good idea for you to figure that out sooner than later, because that's what we're here to do. And maybe you don't want to be here. <clears throat> that's not really my problem. It's not the kid next to your problem. That's kind of your problem and you got to figure that out. But if you're here um, you better be here for that reason. Cause that's the only reason. And everything that we're going to be doing is going to be geared toward that. And if you're not interested in that um, maybe you find someplace else to be.
1: Um, so, so, So hopefully the student self-selects out.
0: Yeah, but they don't. They never do. But they get they do get a sense that mm, <laughs> this guy's serious. Um I'm not gonna be able to sleep here <laughs> hopefully, right?
1: So the real message is You're I here mean, to work. You're here to work and that's let's be clear about it. Right. Yeah. I don't know though, Tony, going back to what you said the motivation precedes what was it? That you said exactly, motivation, behavior. the behavior, behavior, motivation. But then the behavior. level of motivation is modified by the behavior.
0: Sure. I mean, you got it, but you got to have a reason to do something, right? And I don't, maybe we can get around this by not calling it motivation. But if I'm going to do the homework or not do the homework, um, I can either be motivated, be self motivated, because I'm really interested in reading this book because it's really like a good story, or I know that if I show up in class. Uh, Uh, there's going to be a spot quiz and I'm going to get a zero and I can't afford a zero. So however, and that's not how, what I do, (laughs) but however you balance the rewards and the punishments or the, the positive or negative outcomes, you tweak what the behavior is and that you form the motivation for it. Right. You don't steal that Cadillac because you end up in jail. That's your motivation for not stealing the Cadillac.
1: Why would it steal a Cadillac? Yeah, I <laughs> Given the either. choice of cars, <laughs> that would not be my first choice. But do you have some concrete examples of how you tweak, let's say, activities or the motivation for your classes so that you can deal with a situation like that?
0: Oh. Or
1: is it something you kind of are just doing ongoing... Through your interaction with the students and it's the subtle. comments. It's
0: subtle. It, it's ongoing and it's subtle and it's all those things that um, we think we're in control of. But you talk about whether you, you know, as a whole class, like, so for example, there's a homework assignment and everybody does it and they go, wow, this is really great. I'll, I'll just say that say, man, everybody did this. Or in the other case, it's like, I can't believe, I, I'm really disappointed. I can't believe that only 15 of you did this. I, I, why do you think that this is okay? It's not okay. This is not good enough. Hmm.
1: Do you ever scold students in front of other students? Yeah. So I, will scold,
0: it, I will scold students specifically when they're disrupting other students, right? I won't scold students for not doing work and for not, for being late, et cetera, et cetera. But when they're disturbing other students, I have no hesitation in, in scolding them. And I'll ask them, say, listen, if you're going to continue this conversation, you need to leave. Again, this is, I go back to that same stick, right? This is a classroom. We're here for this. Mm-hmm. As I, you may be having a great conversation and it might be really interesting, might be really important, but this isn't the place for it. Take it outside. Hmm. You can leave. Hmm. Go. You're just bothering other people. And I, I don't have any hesitation in, in, in doing that. Um, for performance things, nah, not so much.
1: See, the only performance thing I think that I would scold a student in front of other students is the student who, when I ask for the homework and they say, I don't have it because I was absent. Hmm. And then I have to go through the, we have a website, you have friends in class, it's your responsibility. I've mentioned this a few times before. So I try to avoid that scolding kind of as much as possible. Um, Positive things, as you said, you talk about everybody did the assignment, you... So you kind of are praising the class rather than individuals. You're kind of using that kind of group identity as a means to enhance performance or do you find yourself more working on Well, an do, level?
0: I will do both. But you kind of get into again with this with the uh, the teacher expectations and the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um I'm very careful not to praise indiv- individual students too much. Because I try to keep that as, as balanced and, ob- and as objective as possible, right? I mean, in a lot of words, like, so for example, a, a high score on a test or on a paper is, is should, I think, reward itself or enough. Um, I don't think I for the kid who, like, failed or had a like, poor grade, I don't need to rub his or her nose in it, the fact that they didn't do such a good job. Well, I mean, maybe they were trying, maybe they weren't. I don't know. Um, but I'll be much more judicious with classroom comments. Uh, however, you know, Individual comments on papers and things, um, you know, or even a test, get a little smiley face if they get, you know, 100% or something. Um, I don't have any problem with that. But uh, in terms of the whole class, I try not to, again, except for the disruptors, um, try to minimize co- class comments to the class praising an individual student. When they're often individual groups doing things, um, yeah, that that that's, that's fair game, right? So you got students, four or five students. Walk by, say, "Yeah, that was really that's really a good point." And you also think about you know a a and b as well, from this other perspective, or something, or ask a question, right? So, those kinds of things, yes. But I won't single out students to the class, not ordinarily. I might, I might have done it in the past, but won't make our habit of that.
1: I might do that if I'm speaking individually to students, right? But uh, not, I won't announce it, you know. I, I No, no. I not never, never do that. Because
0: uh, that actually, that actually can be, students your... singling them out, drawing attention to them can actually be negative, so I'm not going to do that again. Right, exactly. <laughs> He's especially embarrassing me in front of the whole class. I'm not going to do a good job next time. I'm...
1: Right, especially in Japan where yeah. you're not supposed to do better than the other person. Right. You're really... Uh, making a mistake on that one so the the feedback has to be on an individual basis has to be done somewhat privately but i find that getting students working in groups is one of the best ways to be able to raise the bar and at the same time make comments yep in a public setting so that students can see what other students are capable of doing
0: Yep, yep. It gives them a very close up look and see what other people, what the what the norm is, and for them to see whether they're producing more or less than or but everything else, and the fact that other people are looking at what they're doing also, I think it can be a, to use that word you don't know, like, a good motivator. <laughs>
1: that's right. <clears throat> but I think the other thing that is really key to raising the bar, and it's kind of the most important thing, and that's why it's being saved to the end, is if. I want to raise the bar. If I want to increase students' performance, they have to have a model of what's being, what's an example of good. There has mm-hmm. to be some model that they understand that this is what I am aspiring towards, this is what I am trying to achieve. And it just can't be, I want you to be better. So if I say, I want you to write a good essay. I have to provide them with a model and say, now this is an example of a good essay. Let's look at it. What, what makes it good? Really this is
0: important, a- especially in Japan. Really important.
1: Yeah. And I've been hesitant to do that in Japan because of the tendency for copying. And over a long period of time, I've done that. You know, that, no, I'm not going to give a model because they'll just copy the model. And they'll just use that as a template and fill in the blanks and there won't be that much learning. But I realize it doesn't matter that a model of excellence must be provided mm-hmm. that this and mm-hmm. this is minimally and a minimally acceptable model and this is not an acceptable model so students really have a clear idea because it might be clear in my head what's good right and
0: building it from scratch in their head against all the, the the stuff that they've already mislearned uh is really hard and unnecessary uh, you're i think you're right with the model thing as much as some of our instincts balk at, um, you know, force feeding or hand feeding them too much and things. I think mm, they know, they, they understand how to work with models. Let's use that. <laughs> Let's use that.
1: Right. It's, it's, it's an incredibly useful tool. Um, and even though I feel that they might copy or I'm scared of that, it just boils down to the fact that my expectation is not visible to them. It's not obvious to them. It's not understandable. They don't really understand what I mean when I say I am expecting higher quality work or more work or better work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, if you say this is I want 250 word paragraph from you, show them what a 250 word paragraph looks like. Answer, you know, and provide them the range. Does it have to be exactly 250 words? What if it's 248, 247? Is that acceptable? Um, if I say that I want clear argumentation or I want supporting sentences that have concrete evidence, provide the model. Give them some things that they can measure themselves against because how can they raise the bar if they don't know how they're doing against the bar?
0: Yeah, my my students have um, two samples of book reports online that they can do. And then also for the... Uh, critical essays that they have to write um persuasive essays at another university, I have links to pages that have models online for them so mm. um i yeah, I do that all the time' cause yeah, it, it, yeah it just it helps them do a better job
1: yeah, I think that we get you know success from that and the importance of rubrics so that they understand how things are being evaluated and so the criteria are clear mm-hmm. there's also something really helpful but the flip side of that is then they start working towards a grade so your rubric has to be designed towards performance right not grading otherwise they will you get that working towards okay i'll just i'll shoot for a b not rather shoot for learning goals achieving something well, Tony, what do you think? Do you think we've covered that?
0: I think I think we got it. I think we've got it. Um in terms of like setting, you know, the the classroom tasks in a certain way with a certain backup preparation for it, setting the goals or the levels appropriately. Um also trying to control the subconscious things that we mm. communicate in the classroom, um, unintentionally. Kind of getting a, you know, being aware of that and trying to get a handle on that. Um, different ways of rewarding students, different ways of calling students out when uh, their behavior, their performance is less than you think it should be. Um, and I think, but uh, you know, the thing that you mentioned early on, the uh, well, we both agree on that, that uh, initial assessment, accurate assessment at the beginning, critical, and then setting up, as, as you suggested, those yeah, initially, and then I would say progressively through the semester, tasks that are that they are able to succeed at. Mm. so
1: And setting up an ongoing system of assessment so that you know how well they're doing against the bar. And they know, and, too. And they know. Mm-hmm. You know. Because it's it's up to them. I, I want to give my students responsibility. It's like, I expect more from you. Now you decide, right? It goes back to your comment about motivation. So... I think we're all in agreement about most of what we've talked about. And just want to emphasize again the importance of models of mm. what what the bar looks like. Right? And sometimes even showing a before and after with students is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I think we've covered it and we can wind this one down. Yeah. Okay. So Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. Two teachers talking, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And
0: a uh, brief shout-out to a long-time listener from the very beginning, almost, I think, Rebecca, somewhere here ah, in Rebecca. Japan. Hi, Rebecca. Yeah. And um, all, our listeners in, all our listeners in Russia. That's right. Looking at the logs and things. A lot of, the, a lot of our listeners are over in Russia, so uh, I don't speak Russian. <laughs> Neither but do hello, I. And thank you for listening.
1: That's right. Thank you very much for listening. So... Please keep listening.
0: Yeah, and uh, give us you know, give us a shout. Let us know what's what's going on over there. At
1: at 2, two teachers teachers talking.
0: Talking com. <laughs> go ahead, Tony. And the uh webpage 2teacherstalking.com and Skype also 2teacherstalking.
1: Okay, Tony. And that's about it. And here we are in the middle of the break, getting ready, <sighs> evaluating, planning, and I'm going to go back to planning. <laughs> So be well. You too.